So today we will be looking at the family and the state. Um, I'm going to start by reading an article. Please pay attention and you tell me from which country this is from. Uh, a newspaper article by John Kasim on the 10th of September 2022. And it's called uh, Zimbabwe's new marriage law gives girlfriends inheritance rights. So the Marriage Act Chapter 5 uh, 15 was signed May 27 and took effect at the end of August. The most notable changes in the new law are the recognition of civil and customary law marriages. The same is under customary law marriages, parties were not considered to be married at law. Rumbi Zaivenge, a lawful based sorry, a lawyer based in the nation's capital of Harare told Anadolu Agency. Upon the death of a husband or dissolution of the marriage, very little could be experienced in terms of property rights, particularly by women who were disenfranchised in a lot of these unions, he said. Unlike in the past, the new law recognizes civil partnerships, which are not marriages but are recognized only for property sharing. A civil partnership is a relationship between a man and a woman older than the age of 18 who live together on a genuine domestic basis. The union can coexist with any other marriage, including a civil union. So when the relationship is terminated, any one of these two can use the civil partnership provision to get protection, which is also accorded to married people that are divorcing. Abigail Machai, director of the Zimbabwe Women Lawyers Association, told the Turkish news agency, a matrimonial causes act will be used to determine the dissolution of the relationship and how property is shared. The use of matrimonial causes act was not possible for any marriage apart from civil marriage in the past. Judith Kavu, a member of the Zimbabwe Widows, Widowers and Orphans Association, told Anna Dolly agency that she was happy with the new law. As an organization that deals with victims of unregistered marriages in most cases, we welcome this new law as it's progressive, as it is in line with the principle of equality, stated in the Constitution and our laws, the legal implications. The new law has brought a radical change to marriage laws. In Zimbabwe, the Marriage Act and customary marriages being repealed, the previous ones. So civil marriages under the Marriage Act were considered superior and handled differently upon divorce. But now all marriages are treated equally, giving Zimbabweans, Zimbabweans in other marriages more rights to inherit property. Most women in Zimbabwe have not yet their aurora or bride price paid yet. They have built homes and acquired properties with their husbands and often the wives and even their children sired out of these unions are left out of the inheritance. This is what this new law seeks to resolve. The reason why I am particularly starting with this is um, the discussions that I want us to be having they are discussions that have to do with things that we can see near near to ourselves. Um, we won't be talking about things that are far and distant to a country that is unknown or to families that are foreign that we have heard about in some distant country. So we want to look at these things specifically as they apply to ourselves. We want to look inward. 
So today, we want to look at two institutions, the state and the family, and the foundational truths concerning their existence. Why do they exist and how do they come to exist? Rose and their limits. So we know that as Christians, we are called to be model citizens given to civil obedience. We discuss then the confines of this submission as it relates to the biblical role of the family. And we will also observe changes in how the two intersect, the two institutions themselves, from an operational or practical point of view. And what we are observing could be an overreach. I'm going to be bringing up very controversial things, but we'll be seeing them. Maybe we've never really thought about whether these things are scripturally there, or they are silent, or we just see the government doing whatever it wants. Uh, for example, determining exchange rates or coming up with economic policies, monetary policy and the like. Is it biblical? And when they are saying you're supposed to be banking your income, is it even biblical? Um, so what's the extent of the authority that the state has on its citizens? That's what we want to explore today. We also observe um, the consequences which us as Christians, we are then being asked to respond to. You will see that in, in how I'm going to be approaching this, I'll have more to say on the family as opposed to the, to, to the government. Because from a scriptural point of view, the role of the government does not as, have as many instructions compared to what is there on um, concerning the family. I hope you'll be able to see this. So for us to understand authority as it is defined in these two institutions, uh, we need to understand the source of the authority itself, uh, its foundation, and then how we are to submit to it. So the this institutions we are looking at, uh, we must remember that there are certain institutions that are given after the fall. And then some which existed before the fall. That will also then help us to understand the specific role of uh, whichever applies. <clears throat> so to understand the institution we're looking at, we should remember the lawlessness inherent in human life, the sinful inclinations which one of us, all of us in fact, have. So my intention is not to be distant, to point to governments and families far away in some distant place where none of us have ever been. I want us to look inward here right now or else this discussion won't be very helpful. So our gracious God in restraining lawlessness and in his wisdom has granted authority to the institutions, three institutions that we've been looking at, but obviously with respective limits. Brother Tanaka Last week gave an example, for example, um, I mean on, on the government specifically, that it has no authority to enforce the regulation of some sins, right? On some sins, um, for example, pride or lustful thoughts. <laughs> but mostly governs outward conduct. <laughs> Remember, there is an issue of evidence. <laughs> having to be seen doing something before you can be convicted. 
So in then considering our discussion today, we must remember that the authority then to be undertaking whatever uh, authority, to exercising whatever form of authority, the institutions themselves, they do not have absolute authority. Their authority is given by God and in their rightful use of or even lack thereof of the use of that authority, they are accountable to God. Since he alone has ordained them to be the means by which he uses in relating with him and in our relations with one another. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Romans 13 verse 1. For there is no authority, absolutely none, none whatsoever exists without the authority granted to it by our holy God. So this is the ground and basis of all salvation. <clears throat> if God is the source of the authority, then he alone can determine the basis of the use of the authority. No one else has this particular authority because all of it resides in his character as God. So it's flowing from the nature of God himself in his holiness or in God, in, in him being the God of justice. If it's in the case of the government, which I'm going to explain later on. So I'm going to look at the specific roles of these two based on these foundational truths. We'll start with the government. Let's note that the government did not exist before the fall. In the garden, there was only Adam and Eve and God, and there was no need for the government. The submission of Adam and Eve was directly to God. Mm, true. There was no evil before the fall, but after the fall, we see the culmination of a government over time as men subdued the earth, and the idea of a government is then in the use of restraint, power, or force. And this is why we see there's a lot of invasions and all sorts of things in the, in the Bible, because obviously kings, monarchies, were trying to uh, forward what would be their own self-interest. But primarily, the government is related to restraint, the use of power and force. It does not preach things in order to exhibit or to influence behavior, but it uses force. And this is why when we have Police officers, they are called law enforcement agencies. Mm. It's about force. So this is why the primary and biblical purpose of all government is to be God's minister against evil. And subsequently mentions, rulers are a terror against evil. He does not bear a sword in vain. When he draws it out, it's because he wants to use it. For he is God's minister against evil. Therefore, we must be subject. No, this is Paul still writing to the Romans. You must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for your conscience' sake. And the reason why he's speaking like this, let's remember the context of Romans. I think as this Paul says, 
He's trying to encourage the Christians who are under immense persecution by the very same government that they must submit to it. Even he himself was then executed by the same government that he's talking about. Peter also does the same thing when he writes to, to the churches or the dispersion in different places. And he was encouraging them that they should submit to the government and, the, and, and to the end of even glorifying Christ. Mm. That as they are submitting to the government, it's to the honor and the glory of God. This is very important. That it's not that because the government is nice or it has good policies for the people, therefore we can then submit to it. But the posture of Christians is to bend backwards and submit ourselves civil obedience to whatever authority that we have, irregardless of whether they are good or they are evil. Though we'll talk about the confines of this authority is subservient or falling under God's will. Remember the, the common saying that for as long as the government is not forbidding us to do what God is not forbidding us what God has commanded or commanding us to do what God has forbidden. That's the the thin line, or rather the uh, context in which all submission to the government must be about. So not if you are breaking the law and your conscience is, is pricked, we must be careful. Because Paul then says that for the sake of our conscience, for the sake of our conscience, especially Christians, we must then be submissive to the government. I'll give examples. Going over a red traffic light without flinching. Not even thinking about it. The idea is to maintain order. Or even driving without a license. Or taxes. Not paying taxes. When the taxes are supposed to be perhaps paying for prisons. I don't know. I would, I'm not accurate about Zimbabwe. I haven't seen prisons being built in a while, in a very long while. <laughs> and I hear people are pegged in the budget we are paying taxes and taxes are going to something else. That's something that's 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 another another different story. But we know that possibly the way that the reason why they are doing this is maintaining order. Let's say for the case of licenses, we need computer drivers on the road to spare human life. So the reason then why the government plays its role is for the sustenance of human life and protection of property rights. The issue of property rights, we'll see it throughout the Bible in how sometimes inheritance had to be shared. The government sometimes would have a say in it. So our submission is therefore only within the confines of what God considers evil, if they are avoiding evil. I mean, not avoiding evil, but avoiding righteousness. So the state in this regard cannot consider what God considers good to be evil. 
or what God considers good to be evil. They do not have that authority. God has not given the government the authority to determine what is good or what is evil. Then, on the other hand, the family submission then to a government is therefore within the confines to what God has explicitly then considered to be evil as revealed in scripture. I'm not done with the government, but I'm going to come back later on. So the government then can also administrate the protection, like I mentioned, of property rights. Much of the Old Testament covers this, including mostly inheritance. And also taxes, which the Apostle Paul also mentions in Romans chapter 13. And I would also argue, this is just me, only to the extent of finding the roles mentioned in the Bible, maybe. So things like war and uh, the preservation of peace. The family. Uh, please bear with me. I'm going to be bringing up very controversial things. We can always discuss afterwards. By family, the Bible makes reference to a household. Paul's letter to the Ephesians provides the different relationships which characterize this particular state, uh, setup. So the foundational relationship is that of one husband and one wife, which is established in marriage. Then parent and child relationship established by birth or as the fruit of marriage. Then master and save or servant relationship, which is mostly or related to an employment relationship. So these are the three that characterize a household or a family. So the indication is that the family was considered as a production unit from a biological and economic point of view. We see this for example, the Puritans, the Puritans considered the household and family as one thing. Its production in the biblical economy is predominantly in the home. A case in point is the passing on of a family trade or vocation from one generation to another. We remember how Christ, sometimes um, the Nazarenes would refer to him as son of a carpenter. We also see, I think there are traces of, um, I remember these, I think Nimrod, was it Nimrod? Uh, or Ishmael. Ishmael was said to be a hunter or something like that. So you see the trace in which there is, in a way, the competencies or the skills, the trade, they become a family trade. And then they are passed on. And even in the generations way after this, in the period to its time, for example, most of them are actually possibly farmers. And um, I remember that Jonathan Edwards had to do for me, which would then, in terms of observing specific things that are commanded in Scripture in terms of the family and the household, you see the entire relationship would be very much applicable. It's different to our age where there is a commercialization of employment and vocations. We have to look for employment elsewhere. Almost then there's a tiny group of people whom they call, they call themselves shareholders. And they are the ones who are then making decisions or <laughs> whatever we are doing is for their um, return or whatever, whatever else we call it. So this context then will not apply as, as clearly as um, during the biblical times. 
but there's an extent to which we can still have uh, some form of production happening in the home. We sometimes employ helpers. It's a nice name, helpers, uh, in some quarters, servants. So we also see, I've already mentioned, but before I further on identify more roles identified in scripture, I want us, I want us to be reminded of specific things about the foundation. Uh, we should never be tired of saying these things. Marriage must not be seen as a custom, but a divine institution. Yes. The fact that every culture has to do it, or is some way of doing it, should not then make us think or be fooled to undermine uh, its institution based on the authority that, that is given to it by God himself, because it was his idea anyway. We also need to remind ourselves that it is a mechanism for restraining some sins as well, with benefits or some activities meant for it, such as intimacy, when indulged outside of its context, then become a sin. In this sense, the marriage is a restraint in a similar way that the government, gov the government is, to a certain extent, in upholding righteousness and holiness. Well, not necessarily holiness, but righteousness mostly. In this sense, the marriage is a restraint of specific evils such as fornication, even adultery, many of which, when they become rampant, they result in broken families, effects which are easily seen in society, such that the government sometimes has more weight. So, when God then grants a family with children, the additional commands then become active. For example, the education, discipleship, and disciplining of children is the role of the family. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 6. With the children's duties, including first obeying children and honor, sorry, obeying their parents, honoring their parents in the Lord. And the context of education, I found this very interesting. The Puritans would put it under family worship. Mm. Because as the family is undertaking faithfully their devotions, catechism comes into play. Scriptural reading comes into play, and the children get to know about God, and they get to know the law. And it is this law, when it is revealed, then they become sub, they submit to it. So family worship then becomes a very central aspect of a Christian family, especially in terms of instruction of, of God's word. Richard Baxter would say, this is, this is what he says, the family is furnished with special advantages and opportunities which may appear by an enumeration of particulars or the counting of particulars. Number one, there is the advantage of authority in the ruler of the family, the father, whereby he may command all that are under him in God's worship and may inflict penalties on children and servants that refuse, may cast some out of the family if they become obstinate. Mm. Number two, 
Yes, the advantage of a singular interest in wife and children by which he may bring them to it willingly that so they may perform a right evangelical worship. Number three, he has the advantage of a singular dependence of all upon him for daily provisions, is the provider, and of his children for their portions for livelihood in the world, whereby he may yet further prevail with them for obedience. He having a power to reward as well as to punish and command. It's almost a semi-government. Remember the government, government speaks of rewarding and praising all that is good and also punishing what is evil. The road also comes into play. Although, in the context of the government, there's the use of the sword. They have the opportunity of cohabitation and so are still at hand, I mean in a good sense, as in the children and the parents are living in the same house for the avoidance of doubt. Yes, yes. Alright? So they have the opportunity of cohabitation and so are still at hand and more together and so in readiness for such employment. Number six, they have hereby an advantage against all prejudices and jealousies which strangeness and mistakes may raise and cherish among those that live at a greater distance, and so may close more heartily in God's worship. Even, isn't it, they are even much closer to one another. They are even taking care of one another from a spiritual standpoint. Because we observe one another, our lives are much more open. And when mistakes are made, remedies, they can be brought forth much quicker. And their nearness of relationship, of relation and natural affections do singularly advantage them for a more affectionate conjunction and so for a more forcible and acceptable worship of God when they are in it as of one heart and of one soul. This is in the context of family worship. Yet even submission and obedience then comes, spills over from the work that is undertaken by a father in the home and leading our family worship. Of course, there are certain things that in their private worship they cannot do. For example, administering sacraments. But anyway, that's not the topic for the day. The next thing, in honoring the parents, it comes in the form of taking care of their parents. This is very important, and I'll tell you why. Because the fallacy that we now have is the government has a responsibility for taking care of those who don't work social welfare. The government has a responsibility for taking care of the elderly. And this is why they enforce us by statutory laws to pay for pension and all sorts of things. We Zimbabweans will know what that has resulted in. You pay your pensions, someone else diverts it, it benefits a couple of people. Sorry, we are moving on, we are changing. The cycle goes on. And in God in his wisdom, he has laid it out in scripture that this responsibility is part of honoring parents. This is still in the family. So in honoring the parents, children are to take care of their parents. Matthew 15, verse 3 to 6. 
our failure to take care of our parents is indeed hypocrisy and dangerous, especially in old age. Mm. This is what Christ says. He answered them, speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees when they were honoring the traditions of men and despising the commandments of God. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Mm. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. This is very explicit. In terms of the family's responsibility, for those who are now responsible and taking heading their own families, honoring your parents, taking care of them. It's expected in the family. It's hypocrisy if you don't do it. A Christian family's testimony is even indicated by the effort to take care of their parents, however little their substance. This is not saying when you have more, you start taking care of your parents, or honoring your parents. Even with a little that you have, you can still take care of your parents. Christ gave an example and handed over his mother. There is an assumption that by this time, uh, Joseph possibly was dead. Right? He handed over his mother into the care of John. Woman, behold your son. To Mary, and then to John, behold your mother. John was now to take care of Mary. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. This is John chapter 19. The next one. Families must support grandparents, orphans and widows. Though sometimes this is given and administrated by the church. But we don't know that the church is not in the business of making money. If there is any income that is given, it's coming and being generated in the household. Yes. Since a family is a productive unit which earns income, some of it is purposefully given for the support of human welfare. I've started with the parents. Now I'm going to be extending this to other places. Paul exhorts Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, this is social welfare now, in a way. If a widow has children and grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. And to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, is set a hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even when she leaves. Command these things as well, so that they may, so that they may, I'm lost, command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and was worse than an unbelief. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 4 to 8. 
there's a testimony of a witness of Christ in how we manage our households as families. Grandparents, widows. Our grandparents sometimes are even widows. They have lost our grandfather. Now we are taking care of our grandmother. The Christian family is the social welfare provider of the entire society. We must create that capacity. It is our duty. Given our discussions, I have questions for everyone. You don't have to answer me. I may want to conclude that in, even in the intersection of the father and the government, much responsibility is given to the family. It is not commanded by scripture that the government one provides education to our children. Number two, health care. Three, redefine God's commandments. For example, abortion or marriage. Marriage of homosexuals and whatever not. That's not marriage. They should find another way with their guests. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Even in the context of polygamy, is in our case, or promoting fornication and all sorts of sexual immorality is in the case of the article that I read for you earlier on. But these are the laws that are being passed right before our eyes. There was a time when I was teaching ethics and there were there are many people that have been attributed to um, helping or rather um, scholars we've come up with virtues and all sorts of theories but one thing that was important was the tie between the political realm the society and individuals and families a long time ago families would detect what laws to be passed within a particular constituency or even in parliament it was the society in fact, it was the family that disciples the children. The, chi- the children then show up in society. And through them and the rights that are given to them by other laws, they vote for specific things. So what it would mean is the laws of, any, of a country would reflect the morality of, of the people. But the power that has been given to the government, it's almost as if the government is the one that is determining the morality of the society, which is pretty much how things have turned upside down. So this is why we now have a redefinition of marriage. Then we also are rewarding idleness, social benefits to people who don't go to work. When Paul is saying, whoever does not eat, does not work, must not eat in a way. As a friend of mine, he went. He, he had somebody who went to to Canada, and she. I'm told she sought asylum. When she got there, she was getting eight hundred dollars. She was staying in a hotel. She was not doing anything. She was. She'll be getting all these benefits up until the Canadian government processed their papers and gave her a job. Easy peaks. So all these schemes in our context of Zimbabwe especially, we have seen how they've resulted, for example, in 
in corruption and abuse of funds which are called statutory payments um, mandated by law such as pension deductions to take care of the elderly. Yeah, even I would go on and on. But I guess you get the point. <laughs> so, so, you know, my point is um, the relationship between the family and the state. Let's not neglect our call as families to be doing what we're supposed to be doing. There are no excuses. Scripture is very clear of our duties. And we must never let the government take over these roles. Last Sunday we spoke, uh, uh, one of the visitors was saying that our education is heritage-based, is now heritage-based. And what it means is we, we must know more about our ancestors, the mediums, and all those people who are pretty much active in the first Chimurenga and the second Chimurenga. Those are our heroes. What else comes with that? Their way of life, because that's what then is being taught in schools. Apart from that, you as a Christian, you've handed over the authority you have to be educated, not, not just the privilege also, apart from the authority that you have, the duty that you have, you then surrender it to the government and they spend eight hours teaching evolution, teaching heritage and all other pagan things for eight hours. They come back, you have a devotion for 15 minutes and you expect your child to be a solid Christian or at least to understand, have reverence on the holy things of God. It's impossible. It's practically impossible. Or you say you're homeschooling, you even bring over a helper and they cover some of the things in between their conversations, they could be, she will be discipling your, ch your children for the next three hours in your absence. You have no idea what she's teaching their children. Then they show up saying funny things and like, where did you get this? So, my plea is, we see the seriousness of what the government is now up to. Um, and we also see the dangers and the consequences of us surrendering this authority to govern our families to the world. Mm. So, any questions? Mm -hmm. oh. <laughs>